0: Approved. Yeah, approved. <laughs> Hi, Christine.
1: Hi. How are you?
0: Yeah. Very nice to meet you. I'm fine. It's unbearably hot here today, and uh, it's the it's the favorite day of the year. My favorite day of the year. Um, the
1: longest one.
0: The longest one. Yeah. I just love it, and uh, yeah, it's in- incredibly hot here in Berlin. And so yeah. I have the I have the uh, the door open to the balcony. And I, I hope you won't hear the noise of the, from the cars, but it's... Uh...
1: No, it should be fine, especially with the headset. And it's, it's nice. It's all good. Yeah, it's pretty warm here, too. It's the uh, yeah. summer season has kicked in, so...
0: But you guys have a have AC, which we still don't really have here because yeah. like the, the, the summers have been progressively getting hotter and hotter. It's, that's what it seems like to me. I, I'm, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't have ah. data, but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, we can still make observations, you know, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah exactly. You just have exactly. to know that sometimes they're biased by our perception. Cognitive bias is a big thing. So as long as you recognize that, and uh, that's good. You can make all uh-huh. the observations you
0: want. Christine, <laughs> you're Canadian, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, French Canadian even. Yeah. So it's, uh, you yeah. know, yes, yes. So I uh, was born and raised in Quebec City. Mm-hmm. Spent uh, half my life there, and now uh, almost have my life here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah. At Quebec City is really beautiful. It's, it was interesting to me to visit, to see how, how European it feels. It's, uh,
1: yeah, it's really is, is strange it
0: right? for, yeah. you know, for yeah. somebody like me, who's been visiting the U S quite a, quite a few times and Canada, only a handful, you know, maybe three or four times, uh, you know. It's uh, it's super interesting. Like, yeah, it's you know? the
1: first uh, colonized city I think in the whole uh, North America officially. That okay. you know so, and it's uh, it's still a walled city. It's occupied by troops, even though there's no you know war and whatnot. <laughs> you mm-hmm. may have noticed the fortress around. Yes, it's mm-hmm. really beautiful. I love it. I love it, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of a big uh, homestead for Prague Rock. So I'm yeah. sure you guys go there and you, it's, it's, I have so many friends, you know, just go and it's, it's a big uh, rock place still yes. today.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've already said, like, I don't feel like a scientist, even though some of the things I do are kind of uh, um, research-based, I would say. I would even say that my, my musical, my interest in music is research-based, like you know i'm making albums to see okay what if what if i do this or how will people react if i do this and and that's sort of like my interest and but you're you're a scientist and you uh um you know just just for, for people to know like i i met you um at a at a show a show i guess and uh, yes. the Ken- canyon club yes exactly maybe?
1: Yes canyon Club, yeah and
0: so so we were then uh, connected on Facebook and at uh, some you know, I think quite a few years ago then I saw you post about your um, well, you know uh, your research and i was yeah. I was surprised I was you know I mean it's it's uh, because I mean there's there are many reasons, so first of all, earthquakes right like vibration of like maybe the biggest kind that we can experience as music
1: of the earth music (laughs) of the earth
0: (laughs) (laughs) and so so (laughs) so how how did you how did you get to where you are and uh, like how would you describe your journey and you can be as as detailed as you want
1: (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, so you, you ask a question that may take the whole interview. But <laughs> so I, I'd say that the, first, the main reason I'm doing this is because I'm curious. I've always mm-hmm. been curious about everything since I was a kid and so on. And the funny thing is I really thought I would turn out to be a musician. Uh, you know, that's what I like. You see, I own a few instruments. I haven't played those now in more than a year. And most of them I haven't played at all really for 20 years, but I still I put them in my office last year. Maybe if I see them every day, I'll pick them up again. (laughs) But I really thought that's what I would do uh, or even theater and stuff that's a little bit more creative. But at the same time, I was always curious about everything. I like to learn and so on. I, I and I was 14, I would go babysitting and I brought uh, psychology books from Piaget with me to read at night. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just a geek at heart. So <laughs> um, so, anyways, uh, yeah, it's a very long journey, but I, I came to this because I don't like to do things that are repetitive. I like things that are always challenging and learning all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting because what, I was always fascinated by music. So we, we connected through that. And it's really something that's really important to me. And music is both uh, pleasurable and intellectual. Mm-hmm. You know, I I get I derive so much pleasure to listen to something and listen to every note of every instrument. And I get in a trance and I get the pleasure in the frontal lobe here, the, the frontal cortex. I'm sure you know what I mean, but it's just this yeah. strain of the brain. And I've had that in math <laughs> and in physics, it happened but mm-hmm. um, but anyways, uh yeah, so I was always a big big music into that, and I ended up quitting schools many times after high school because I was doing a concert lighting sound, all those things that's that's how I earned a living for for many many years and mm-hmm. uh, and the funny thing, again, because I'm curious and I like to challenge myself, I really wanted to do more music producing, like mixing and studio and all that. But then I was uh, in college one day and we had this kind of formation or training and it was about lighting. So ugh, lighting's boring, but I'm going to go. And I, I go and then I discover all the really the opening of the how you can control emotions with colors and all that stuff. But what was the kicker for me is we had to climb up on the catwalk and it was secured. It was in a theater, a permanent theater, so it's not moving. And mm-hmm. I froze. I was scared of heights.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I said, that's it. I'm going to overcome this. And I completely switched and went into lighting. <laughs> so it's really funny. Wow. And then discovered, and, and then after that, you know, I worked in arena shows and you climb on the ladder rope like 40 feet in the air and you're on a truss. And I, I was, I overcame that, right? Anyways. So all through throughout doing that, it's a very physical job. I was really tall and skinny and I got injured my back a couple of times. I said, well, maybe I should go back to school. I went back to school, start again. And uh, it was just always uh, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I must have chart- started five different degrees. Uh, in undergrad, I even made my own because I was not happy with the portfolio my university had <laughs> and it was approved by the, the I, I don't know, the, the, the regent or whatever, the president of the university. It was approved. It's, it's like I could go anyways. But um, through all that, I, I finally switched to do a degree in geological engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, because I really went through the book of courses and I ruled out everything i didn 't want to do and there was something fascinating about geology, the time scale of everything, the science involved there 's a lot of thermodynamics, physics and all that also but it's it's also tangible so anyways I, I did actually finish that degree, and some of my friends were i thought they'd never finish a degree because i 'm interested by everything i 'm yeah. just interested by everything mm-hmm. So did that, then I finished school. So i mean, man, you can edit that out. <laughs> it's a long no, story. No, no, no,
0: nothing, nothing's going to get okay. edited out. I think it's, it's very important. Like what you're saying is, uh, I think a lot of the motifs, and uh, I, can, I, can, I can see some interesting things already.
1: <laughs> yeah. But also, also thing- parallels. Also parallels. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah. so You
1: know, it's interesting because I kind of tell that story with images and pictures when I I meet a lot of uh, student interns. I work for an earthquake research center. We have interns and they always invite me to do the presentation because the kids, they don't know what they want to do. They're in their late late, uh, teens, early 20s. They don't know and they freak out. And I show them, hey, you don't have to follow like this path right mm-hmm. and you can be successful in academia even if you do all kinds of things
3: mm-hmm. so anyways
1: after my degree then uh i ended up working with with my ex-boyfriend at the time who we were running a, a publishing company for science books for college and uh, and i was the editorial director smart smart ass out of school and the funny thing is some of the authors of the books had been my teachers mm-hmm. and i was a student who didn't show up for class and then a week after oh shoot There was an exam last week. I'm sorry I missed it because I never went to class or not often. And they gave me a chance. Okay, well, come in the office tomorrow. You can do the exam. They were really, really nice. (laughs) And now suddenly they show up and we're refreshing their books. Well, I think we should do this and that. It's it's awkward, right? And they were laughing. Yeah, but from you, I'm not surprised. (laughs) It's like (laughs) I was kind of proposing new directions for their books. And it was just really, anyways, it was a, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm a bit of a smart ass. But uh, it worked out. And uh, and then after that, I had an opportunity to move to California. I missed lighting. Every time I went to see a show, I had the, the big uh, you know, nostalgia, the pain of not being part of this anymore. At that time, I played music more. But, uh, mm-hmm. And so when I moved to LA, I said, okay, I'm going to go back to this. Uh, and that's what I'll do. And visa issues and all that, it's a bit tricky. So I ended up being a rental manager for a larger lighting company here uh because that was something that was transferable and so on i did that for a couple of years and uh, then did rigging uh, for a company distributing chain hoists for the west coast canada mexico troubleshooting you know setting up stuff in the shop and and um and then i had a really really bad experience from my last employer and i'm never somebody who burns bridges but this one, it was, uh, I think in 2002, I faxed in my resignation and I turned off my phone. I was in Vegas finishing with Paul McCartney and I just, that's it. I'm out of here and uh, and I take a sabbatical and I think about my life. And I was here in LA, uh, earthquakes, of course, are more uh, prevalent and so on. And I thought about going back to grad school. So I shopped around for grad school, thinking. You know, you just go and they accept you. You know, if you have decent degrees, I didn't realize how competitive it was, but I just walked into it and I went to interview professors to see who I would like to work with. And it's like, oh, yeah, I could go, Caltech could go there. And then I met my advisor at, at UCLA, and it was love at first sight professionally. It's mm-hmm. funny because I still work with them and, you know, on projects and so on. And I said, okay, so I only applied to UCLA. Thinking that to me, it's a you know, it's a, it's a formality. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but um, anyways, uh, so I ended up uh, getting accepted. I was fully supported. I had scholarships from Canada as well, and and then I did the I did the masters and PhD in uh, earthquake engineering. And um, I really really focused, and for the first time of my life, I learned to study because I'd been always school was easy for me, and. Uh, mm-hmm. So I generally had good grades. I mean, I had close to 4.0 as an undergrad. One. Once I stopped doing shows and focused and studied uh, a little bit, I, I, to me, honestly, studying, I remember I had a physics class and I didn't do any of the problems or the homeworks. And the exam was at 3.30 in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I would go to the library at 8 in the morning and start reading and do the home the, the problems. And I really thought I worked hard. I really thought I studied because it's the most I had ever done. And I'm not a genius. I just stuff is, I pick up easily. But anyways, uh, long story, even more endless. um, I worked really hard in grad school and uh, it was very rewarding. And I I love everything that I do. It's really fascinating. It's different every day. Uh, There's no repetition. In that sense, that's something I'm sure you can relate. You know, you create things. and, And for me, it's critical to always learn and be challenged. You know, and I've been doing that now for, yeah, I guess, uh, fifteen years or so. I got my PhD in two thousand eight, so I'm kind of a late bloomer. I came to grad school mm-hmm. in my thirties already. Mm-hmm. So, but then it gave me great opportunities because I'm not shy. And uh, my advisor, when he was invited to give talks different places, well, I, I don't have time, but uh, I'll send my grad students. So I was suddenly an invited speaker. <laughs> conferences and and, you know I was just thrown and I thought all this was pretty standard and it it is in some ways but I was very lucky because it just shipped me all over I went to Greece uh, Japan you know Hong Kong well all kinds of places to give presentations it was so cool Mm -hmm. and um, and uh, yeah so it's fascinating it's interesting but between you and me I think I would be just as good studying uh, Neurological science, or going back into sound, uh, as long as there's something to learn yes, um, and create and challenge. And again, the pleasure you get here can happen from science or music or creative. So yeah, so,
0: it's, so it's that's how I got into question. it. <laughs> there, 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 there's so many, and I, I hadn't realized, there's so many parallels. Um, you know for me, this is this is a story I sometimes tell, but it's it's very probably now when I was uh, um, go about to go to university, I had no idea where I, what I would do because like like you said, like my grades were all good, actually super good through the bank, you know, I you couldn't tell okay he he likes uh, geography more than biology no, just it, was good, it, was, it, it yeah. was good in everything, so, so I had no idea really, and so that's why i I took a book and that had all the all the possible poss- options in Germany, you know? And I went through it and now I know what that is, I know what that is, blah, blah, blah. And the only one was psychology, where there were, were a couple crazy. of question marks, a couple of question marks. So how how do you research in the field of psychology? What is an experiment, blah, 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 these things. And so that's why I studied it. Not because I was thinking I wanted to do psychology, it was just because I didn't know what it was.
1: <laughs> wow, so, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I psychology
1: can, is fascinating i mean and and it, it connects to neuro- neuroscience as well it's not just uh, you know yeah. it's, it's neurochemistry and all that it's, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah really cool stuff yeah yeah
0: and it, it is it's a really wide field of, of study and I think it, it really prepared me pretty well for for life in general um you know and at the, you know on the side or you could say like uh, i was doing i was studying psychology on the side really but I was doing music all the time you know, and so I was really, uh, really happy um, because, you know, I didn't, you know, I was, was doing both. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so maybe like a very, um, I don't, I'm sure it's not a stupid question, but so these vibrations that the earthquakes well and this is this is already like the question i don't know how to ask it properly right okay like so so the vibration the vibration comes from (coughs) from the tectonic plates moving right probably and and rubbing or clashing and and that's and the energies put inside and then you get okay, tension so and yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me.
1: I'm just so excited because after <laughs> yeah. time, I, I I often do small interviews here and there, are webinars. But it's usually, you have two minutes, so you have a sound bite. But finally, I can explain that earthquakes yeah. are frequency dependent. To somebody, who will get it right away. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, plate tectonics is basically that you know the the plates move on the. I'm going to simplify the earth structure a lot, but yeah. there's a core super dense. There's stuff that's a little bit more liquid. There's stuff that we call ductile that is between liquid and solid and the crust is kind yeah. of there. So th- let's imagine there's this liquid thing and the crust itself is separated in those plate tectonics that we now take for granted. But even in the eighties, people didn't, didn't all agree with that. Well, some people still think the earth is flat, but that's another story. <laughs> But in the 60s, it's really became a big deal. And Mm -hmm. if you think about it, there's these plates that kind of accommodate and the earth is really a dynamic structure. It's always moving. And the leading theory on why this is happening is that in the liquid underneath, there's kind of like um, convection cells. And so the uh, hot hair moves up. And it cools down by touching the cross and goes back down, and it creates those convections in the cells that are a little bit like a conveyor bed. Yeah. And that makes the plates move around the earth. And mm-hmm. this moving, then you have the plates, they have different types of friction. They can have a subduction where one goes underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, the San Andreas for us is a transform fault, so it's more like this. Well, it's it's a boundary, but and then you have all kinds of faults that accommodate this motion mm-hmm. because the earth, the, the earth is spherical and all that. But an earthquake happens that you have all those forces happening, okay, and eventually you exceed what we call the shear strength, the resistance of the interface, and it starts to break at a nucleation point. At one place, it's weaker, and the weakest point breaks. Uh And then the stress transfer makes it so that there's a rupture. When people sometimes think of an earthquake as in one location, they know the... Uh, epicenter is close or far to them, but they don't know what it means. It's yeah. but it's a full fault, and the the larger the magnitude, the longer the fault, and it, it needs to have all that displacement to cause you know um, to to cause the earthquakes. But what happens is like this displacement causes, of course, heat locally, damage, so material be kind of bends and melts and whatnot. But the energy is released primarily by seismic waves and that's basically yeah. it, it shakes it's like you put two rubber bands next to each other and they you know they're going to generate this energy and so for us an earthquake is what we feel is these waves that travel from the rupture of the fault to our location and these these uh, the ground motions we feel are frequency dependent and mm-hmm depending on the size of the earthquake. So the bigger the earthquake, the more you have low frequencies. Yeah. Smaller earthquakes are only high frequencies and so on. And then um, depending on the earth material that, that there is between the fault and you, uh, it's gonna attenuate more or less certain frequencies, right? So it's kind of like music. The bass, for example, is gonna travel way farther, right? If you're near an arena, You walk away. Suddenly, you don't hear you don't hear Marcus anymore, but you hear Tony. (laughs) (laughs) And and Pat, you don't hear his hi hats, but you hear his kick. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of this thing, and that's that's kind of what we study: how the attenuation happens for different frequencies and so on. And then certain locations can enter in resonance because of that shaking, and so you have a lot more shaking than for the same distance at another type of site because of the soils and all that. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what's happening. I yeah. does that uh, address your question or
0: Yeah, yeah. It? And I mean I mean the, the funny thing is like I have to say you know that's that all is also obvious to me as uh, because you can you can basically build a model of it, right? Yes. Like you just need you can build a model and you can basically just I don't, I don't know. I mean, probably it's, you know, you cannot really make predictions based on a small scale model, but, but you have some idea what kind of, what kind of uh, forces are yeah. active and, and how, how they spread and stuff like that. But let me just tell you uh, one, ex- one uh, experience of an earthquake that I had, uh, I think 2011 or something, was in, uh, in Freiburg, Germany. Cool. and and it was very interesting because it was the first time i was kind of like yeah i really experienced one while i was awake and cool. uh, and so it was really interesting because i it was as if the uh, the the air was was charged with tension like i before before the bang came right that i heard right it was it was the the air was electric and I kind of you know, picked, I picked up on that, and it was it was, and you know, like the way that the sound also was the 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 bang was as if you had a, a a huge metal gate or door that was bent out of shape somehow, and then kind of like snapped back into place somehow. That was that was how I experienced that really short earthquake. Um, like you that's know?
1: interesting. So the the energy the 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 electricity in the air you described it, it's actually it, it happens in certain earthquakes and there's a phenomenon the first time i heard about it i thought it was a hoax earthquake lights sometimes uh-huh. there's lights that flash just before an earthquake because there's discharge i mean it's a lot it's a lot of uh, it's electrostatic stuff and yes, but yeah. it doesn't happen all the time so it's possible that, that mm-hmm. you've witnessed that for that event, but it's usually for a larger event that there's enough to to be felt or seen or something like that. but it's a phenomenon that's been described and 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 is real but it yes. seems a bit esoteric but it's it's real yeah no, and, but
0: I, I don't I don't think so really because yeah. like it, it is it is very much a physical presence right yeah and and like some maybe some people can feel it others can't I don't know
1: yeah, no, that's true you know. and, and I, it's funny because I'm almost an earthquake early warning system myself because I'm super jumpy, right? I, there's a small noise. I, so, uh, and earthquakes, you'll get a kick out of this. Let me explain something else, is Professor <laughs> putting the professor hat, but I think you'll get a kick. So there's different types of waves, right? But let's focus on the, the two main ones. When there's the, the earthquake occurs, there's the compressional waves that come. These are like sound waves. So I'm going to imagine you have a slinky. It, it propagates like that and it propagates uh, in the direction of propagation. It stretches and so on. These travel super fast. And then the ones that so sometimes you're going to feel like a bang or sometimes I, I hear it's like a truck hit a house. And then... My instinct is to count right away. And I'll tell you why in a second, because the waves that follow, that cause the damage, they're shear waves. And again, if you think of the slinky, then it, it, it uh, shakes perpendicular to the wave, of pro- the wave propagation direction. And it has a lot larger amplitudes, okay? They yeah. shear the material as they go. And there's difference, can tell you a little bit the distance of the earthquake. So whenever I feel an earthquake first, Usually I scream if I'm asleep. I scream, wake up, and then I start counting, counting. one, mm-hmm. two, three, and and it's about eight to ten kilometers a second tells you the the distance. So um, it's yeah, I know I, I geek out instantly.
0: <laughs> no, it's it's like thunder and lightning, right? You can exactly yeah. yeah.
1: That's the example I use all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but for me it's automatic. So it seems yours. You were probably very close to it if you only. And smaller earthquakes are short duration, so the larger the earthquake, the longer the duration as well so it's all these different things and so that's the one earthquake you felt
0: yeah yeah i i you know I know that there was one closer <laughs> to my to my home uh, when I was a teen, but i I slept through it, and in the morning, like my parents told me that you know some paintings fell off the wall and stuff. But I, I, didn't. I was painting.
1: Paintings fell off the wall. I don't That's... know.
0: I don't know. It wasn't. <laughs> adu- it, probably not. But, uh, <laughs> but they felt it. Like like my father yeah. felt it. You know. Wow. No, it's like I live. I live in a place where there's very, very few uh, activity like that. You know. But yeah. I, I. You know. I lived in the Alps for a while, for almost ten years. And nev- mm-hmm. never experienced anything there either. So.
1: Wow. Yeah no it's it's interesting and it's so if well you know what day- i'm
0: uh, i'm I, you know I forgot I was in Japan uh, a few times and maybe three or four years ago there there was uh there was one like shaking like a twenty seventh floor shake or something uh, which was yeah. very
3: scary yeah
1: yeah so and again if you're at 27th floor it amplifies the low frequencies right you get into yes. resonance you don't need a lot of shaking at the base to amplify that so that's mm-hmm. that's why mm-hmm. you kind of design things uh, for that but yeah 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 it's uh it's it's interesting and you have no power when it happens it's yeah. shaking you there's nothing you can do it's it's and then you realize the 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 energy that's in the earth and how Tiny, we are little things, mm-hmm. you know, running around <laughs> like dust <laughs> on the crust. It's yeah, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. It's 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 an incredible. I can imagine like uh, like people who go like uh, you know who um, are on ships on you know on on the, at sea, you know, maybe they have some sort of experience of the powers of nature that you know that yes. like you feel small and stuff, but you know like. Mm-hmm. People living in cities, uh, you know, driving with their cars, you still feel like you have power over nature because you can for, go from A to B uh, more quickly than any other uh, being, right? Yeah. And and but yeah. So California, um, kind of an obvious place to be, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, since I research.
1: was here, Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but the the funny thing is though the. I spent about eight years uh, developing, uh, not alone, I had a team of about the 80 best researchers in the US <laughs> working with me, but I was a, what's called a technical integrator, a team lead for that. And um, we focused on everything east of the Rockies. So uh, all the continental, uh, central, eastern US and Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's much harder to come up with ground motion models for an area where you don't have a lot of data. So it was yeah. a very challenging, challenging process. And uh, and the one big thing that we do all the time is, and it's critical for what we do, is quantifying the uncertainties on whatever kind of prediction measure we use. And when I say predictions, i predicting the earthquake, is predicting the consequence of an earthquake given that there is one, right? It's yes. called a conditional probability. So if we have a magnitude 6 on that fault and I'm here, what shaking can I expect and that kind of stuff. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. we do. But if we can reduce the uncertainty, uh, we can really save a lot of money, be safer and and design better and so on. So one, the I think that for the rest of my career and potentially for several generations following, the, the key is to reduce the uncertainties. We know big picture effects. We understand a lot of the big picture things. There's so much we don't understand. So we understand enough to make the world safer but we could do so much better with less resources if we knew more so there's a lot of modeling that happens and you were referring to models so some people sometimes do these studies in the lab so it's physical models most of what we do uh, at my research center and uh, an effort i'm involved in uh, a lot is using supercomputers or we call them high performance computers hpcs mm-hmm. To run these models, so we try to have the best physics models for the rupture itself, how the waves propagate, they get amplified, and all that stuff, yeah. and and then we uh, we validate uh, these these ground motions based on past observations. But right now, I don't. We don't have uh, a recording for a magnitude 7.5 on the center. We have the things we design, need to design for.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you know, like the um, uh, <coughs> computational uh, prediction, let's say, it's, I, it's just because I'm not, I'm not a um, specialist, let's say, but we, I guess you're dealing with like models that include like multiple levels of feedback that you have to take into account because like just it's resonances, right? So it's not, yeah. it's not that you can just calculate it once you have to like, you know, things have to be uh, um, the, the um, in German, the word is Resonanzkatastrophe, so it's the mm. resonance catastrophe, right? Yeah, so if, yeah. if you know, and um. so these, what would you say that these models are kind of like accurate enough to... Um,
1: to a certain extent, but at low frequencies right now so they, and it's funny because let's talk about frequencies for a second because for a musician you go to you care about maybe 20 hertz to 20,000 if you have young listeners and maybe 12,000 for older listeners yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for us what we call a high frequency is anything above 20 hertz right so it's it's completely different scale but um, where was I going with that yeah so the, the, the thing is that even with these these largest HPCs, high-performance computers, we limited into the resolution of what we can deal with. And that's because earthquakes are multi-scale. To have a magnitude 7 or larger, you need hundreds of kilometers of ruptures. So suddenly your model is huge. Yeah. But then to try to replicate and simulate the high frequencies, you need a model size that's maybe a meter by a meter. Well, that's not tractable. So you use multi-scale models and all that stuff. And then there's so much information about the crust we don't know. So we use the best models we can. Then we, so we're constantly updating these things and trying to find what, where is the largest uncertainty. So that's kind of the research we do. Where is the largest uncertainty that if we do some more work, we can reduce? And then we put that in the model. And then we check that the model uh replicates recorded data better than the previous one that was simple so that's kind of iterative process like that yeah
2: yeah Yeah.
1: and these codes are extremely complicated i don't run them myself uh i i kind of oversee how we get the allocations on these supercomputers i actually just submitted friday a very large supercomputing allocation and the codes are very complex and it's not like you can take your code on a Mac and you buy a new Mac, you put it on another one. They need to be rewritten from scratch because the computer systems, its own way to connect the, the, and we try, we use them in a way that we can have like thousands of, processors, thousands of nodes, which is multi, there are multi-processors, CPUs and GPUs, all that stuff need to work together to solve the same problem. They need to connect. They need to be efficient. Yeah. It's a massive undertaking. So to be able to achieve what we do in earthquake scientific, scientific research, we need to work with computer scientists. And again, the lifespan of a supercomputer is five years. Sometimes it can stretch to eight. So you're constantly having to switch system that's very, very difficult and demanding. So it's not just the physics, it's how you code the physics to make it work. And that's a big challenge. That's a really a yes. big challenge. Yes, yeah. yes. But it's, yeah. yeah. It's So yes, I guess the, the question was, do these models work? In big picture, yeah, they tend to work. Mm. And, uh, and mm. where we don't have what we wanna do really, and what I care about, because I come from the engineering background, even though I work at a seismology center, is that what can we model and where in the range where we have data, a certain magnitude distance where we have data, can we replicate that? And if we can replicate that, then we have to trust that beyond that, the physics included, the model is correct, so yeah. we can extrapolate. And then yes. that's the way that we want, we, want it, we do a lot of simulations with the goal of extrapolating, so that where we don't have data instead of doing a, Guess, <laughs> I think I guess it's kind of constrained at least by some physics. So
0: mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of stuff. So, um, um, can you tell me a little bit about how data is collected of um, tectonic plate movement? And uh, I mean, do do you guys literally place microphones in the ground or in the ground or like?
1: <laughs> yes, they, <laughs> well.
0: And how dense, yeah. how, dense, how dense is the network of the, um, you know. Not
1: dense enough. So there's different enough. types of instruments. There is a, for big scale motion of the earth, there's it's more geodesy, we call the science that does that. You can have a lot of big GPSs and stations, permanent stations curtain rock. And over time, you can see the motion, right? Even if there's no earthquake, you can see that everything uh, west of the San Andreas is moving north slowly even though there's no earthquake yet it's mm-hmm. there's there a vector there so that's a kind of big scale satellite measurements and all that when there's earthquakes themselves the thing we use the most are uh, seismometers so these are really uh, i have one in my basement actually it's a it's a it's a El Chico one <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and these rec- record usually in three along three axes you know two xy and uh, vertical and they record the shaking as it happens, and it gets saved. And there's a lot of signal processing. It's funny because it's, it's a little bit like music too. It's signal processing, you do the Fourier transform, you look at the yeah. frequency, you need to filter. Our data is dirty compared to music. When you generate, you control it, mm-hmm. uh, unless you have an El Chippo oscillator on your keyboard or whatnot. But, um, so, yeah, so we process that data. There's large databases. We analyze that. And we try to glean information. But in the U.S., I think the density of sensors is not great. Japan is great. They have a lot of big, large networks that cover broadband, so up to 100 hertz, sometimes more. And even arrays, they have arrays downhole, So they dig a borehole and they put sensors at depth as well. So now you better understand the site response. So, uh, yeah, so there's... Different ways to measure different types of phenomena, but those are the main ones that we use. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Is there is there also a way to to um, see movement from space actually? Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we uh, so from uh, well, from satellite images, you can do uh, you can compare pre and post event satellites, and you can see everything where it has moved. Really cool stuff. Uh, oh. it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. So we work a lot with people from uh, NASA and uh, JPL. It's a center here called the Jet Propulsion Lab. And we don't do rocket science. <laughs> we do our <laughs> study of the Earth. But mm-hmm. we team up with them because they have those capabilities and so on. And uh, yeah, no, it's really fascinating. So that's tracked as well. There's, a, there's a certain satellites like NSAR is a, a big one for that. Or
0: tracking emotions. Wow. wow! Yeah, yeah,
1: that's cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you
0: you're basically like working with really like the the biggest structures that are available to us, <laughs> let's say yeah. as human beings right now, right?
1: The Earth. Yes. The Earth. The earth. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. So, and I guess um, again, maybe a little bit naive, but
1: stop apologizing I guess, I guess, no no
0: no 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 but <laughs> I, I guess i guess in order if if you want to be like really uh really deep about this you need to think globally right like mm-hmm. um because i don't know like because i have no idea what the magnitude like really how that translates um but if you have a magnitude 7 let's say like how far around the globe let's say uh and you can you measure the waves? You know, like oh,
1: across yeah. the globe for a seven across the globe, really at very yeah. low. Uh, again, it's going to be only the low frequencies. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah there was a, a seven. Uh, trying to remember in Alaska just a few months ago, and I captured the peak in my basement, and I have a very cheap instrument. Oh. So, okay. yeah, you can. Uh, and of course, the larger ones uh, for very large earthquakes like uh, the Japan, you know, that caused the tsunami in 2010, at 9.1, 9.2, um, there's uh, sensors catch up multiple ringing around the earth. We don't feel them, it's way too low frequencies, but there's, mm-hmm. there's all that stuff. So, there's a lot of uh, remote sensing and mm-hmm. uh, really far field information. So, and to estimate the magnitude, you can estimate it. Uh, from uh, sensors around your site and so on around the fault, but uh, more and more we use global uh, sensors, so worldwide, because it's it's the same network all the time, so it doesn't vary, and it's it's kind of uh, reliable to uh, estimate magnitude. And magnitude is just a measure of energy, and uh, so yeah, it's, well, it's was, energy release. That. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so and how is it how is that how is it defined magnitude?
1: So it's it's the sci- it's defined uh, mathematically i'm i'm going to skip the the details but it's mm-hmm. a relation that tells you so if i'm a, you, you know what a moment is when you if you move uh, move something you have a moment yeah. uh, to have a shear it's a moment so it's moment magnitude and that's based using some kind of uh, strength of the cross value the amount of slip the area of the, the fault that was ruptured, that gives you roughly the magnitude. That's how we kind of do that. Okay. Mm-hmm, so I'm mm-hmm. simplifying. And yeah, but yeah. <laughs> the magnitude is just a measure of the energy released by the rupture itself. Mm-hmm. But if you have a, a, a magnitude seven and it's like super deep or it's at the a deep in the interface of the subduction zone, because you're far away, you're not going to have the same impact. So magnitude relates to ground motions, but that's not the only thing. And oftentimes, even in LA, every time I do town hall meetings with people, whether it's a public or specialty groups and all that, so, well, my building is designed for magnitude seven. No, it's not. It's designed for a ground motion. <laughs> it's not designed for a magnitude, it's designed for a ground motion. And it, in your case, the one that's most critical might be the 6.5 right under your building. That's how it's designed for. So it's not necessarily, you know, don't design for magnitude. So, uh, yeah. So yeah, magnitude is just a measure of the energy released in the earthquake. And in general, the larger the magnitude, the longer the duration, the stronger the ground shaking. But, um, but it's really what we observe at the surface that matters to us. And that's why there's a, another measure that's becoming used more and more popularly with, uh, with sharing with the public the information, is the intensity because the intensity relates to things we can see. For us, it relates to a ground motion measure, PGA, which the peak ground acceleration and so on. But to you, it, it, uh, it is describable as I cannot stand up. Uh, all my, uh, the frames uh, broke, my chimney broke, that my frames fell down, uh, my foundation cracked. Things that you can observe that are correlated with ground motions. So that's, I think, something that's a bit more intuitive. Uh, then yes, yeah. uh, the yeah. numbers, it's like you know, just, what does that mean? One G? Well, it's the acceleration of gravity, but it's happening horizontally suddenly. <laughs> you know? yeah. so it's it's not easy to see. So, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, because I was I was also always wondering when like when I read about an earthquake and then they say it was like uh, I don't know, seventy kilometers uh, from say like city A. Mm-hmm. Uh, at uh, I don't know like 2,000 kilometers deep, mm-hmm. right? So I what I was what I was uh, always wondering was like because if we're talking about these big structures that collide and you know where the tension builds, how can you how can you tell where in the structure the tension got released, right? Like, so is there, is there, are there like s- several layers basically? And yes. you can, you know how many there are? And so
1: there's several layers and think again of the globe where you have instruments all over the globe. Okay. And, and so uh, the simple way to define where it happened, where it started. So you have just three sensors and an earthquake somewhere. You, you're going to know about the, the, the wave propagation speed. Imagine a sphere. And where the three spheres (laughs) intersect, it's your hypocenter or where it started. Now we got to go, that's the simple idea to locate an earthquake. But then this is just the beginning. But if you have then the full time series of all the wiggles and the waves from around the globe and knowing the Earth's crust, uh, you know, for example, that certain types of waves, uh, so the shear waves, they don't travel through water. So if you're on a boat and there's a big earthquake, you're most likely not gonna feel anything. You Maybe mm-hmm. you'll feel the bang at the beginning and you're not gonna shake. The water doesn't transmit. It doesn't have any shear resistance. Mm-hmm. So if you had take that inner part uh, outside of the core that's liquid, all those shear waves are not transmitted to the sensors there. So we know the, the location and this and that and all that stuff. And then by kind of a complex set of triangulation, And Mm -hmm. each wave has its own phase. So the direct arrival is called a P, and then it's refracted the PS and the PSP and the PP and all those different things. You can gather more information on where's the actual depth and this and that and the magnitude from all those different metrics. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. That's really more seismology. That's not even my field, but I'm a jack of all trades. So that's all good.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm only trying to come up with with the questions that uh, that other people may have about this. You know, what what is so fascinating is that I guess like even if we were if we were, as you were saying, like the you know, it's about the prediction, so that you can kind of like build, say, different kinds of buildings where you know, okay, in this place there's probability, uh, you know, of you know, and then we have buildings there that can resist. That kind of movement of the mm-hmm. earth, right? Um, but like, if we were really want, if we really wanted to, um, um, yeah, like Bruce Willis style, right? We want to, <laughs> <laughs> we want to stop an earthquake. Like, yeah. you know, that is uh, that that is, is absolutely unthinkable. Let's just. Mm, uh,
1: no. It's not an option. Yeah. These it's, are forces yeah. beyond what we can do or do of, of course. Yes. <laughs> but you so, know, Bruce. Willis, but it makes or? it makes for a movie, you know. yeah like, yeah. Oh, the San Andreas, the movie, came out, I don't know, four or five years ago. Man, I laughed the whole time. I was <laughs> laughing. It was so funny. There was just so many inconsistencies, but you expect it. Come on. It's you know, it's 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 a big Hollywood thing. And even the helicopters didn't behave like real helicopters. <laughs> Everything was funny. And I went to see this in 3D IMAX, and I was trying to be discreet, but I was crying from laughter, and the people around me, they were scared and freaking out, and I'm just, just crying, it's like, it was, it was really funny, uh, but uh, entertaining, yeah. Yeah, you know, I,
0: th- there was a time during COVID where I was starting to watch a chiropractor videos on YouTube, <laughs> and just like thinking about how somebody would, would, would crack the earth, like, with the elbow, ah. just <laughs> to make the tension go away, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're gonna need big uh yeah, big hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so you know there's there's uh yeah, I, I was thinking what questions we get asked often. I mean, people just there's so many myths about earthquakes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like the one that I hear probably the most is like, oh my building was designed to code, so I'm safe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, uh code from what year? There were building codes yeah. in 1933. And the uh, knowledge was limited, right? And uh, in the 70s and, and all those different years, and there were construction practices that were changed over time. So yeah, building to code, but the building code changes. So that's one thing. And the other thing, people think also that if their building is built to code, it's going to resist an earthquake and everything's going to be fine. That's not the case. The building code's goal is to prevent uh, de- loss of uh, life collapse but Mm -hmm. it may be that Mm -hmm. your building is so damaged you can't re-enter you cannot use it so you have a a downtime we call you know loss of usage and all that so yeah you would not you didn't die but maybe your house slid off the foundation and you know it's a loss Mm -hmm. you know so so there's different i think a misconception that people think the building code does everything it doesn't. So, you you know, you have to be vigilant. Uh, when I bought my house here, it was built in the 30s. I'm lucky there was no earthquake damage uh, to it. I went and inspected everything, the foundation. But in these days, they built a spread footing of concrete and then they built the house and rested on it. What happens during an earthquake? Slides off. Once it's slid off, what can you do? Nothing. You tear it down. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing I did an earthquake retrofit. So you, they put plates, they reinforce, they attach the house to the foundation, stuff like that. So yeah, there's all kinds of things you can do to help yourself. Those are called retrofits. So even uh, buildings that were built with old building codes, now if we know they have a deficiency that has been since fixed, then you can go and retrofit and fix that so that you're better prepared. So, mm-hmm. But we haven't had a big earthquake. That's not true. We, let me rephrase, because I was I was actually 12 kilometers away from a 7.2, two years ago, right about this time. And it was my biggest, <laughs> and, and it shook a lot. <laughs> but um, we haven't had a big earthquake near a large population area since uh, 1994 in yeah. California. After that was 1989, before that 1971. Uh, so people get complacent, and say, well... I've I've lived through earthquakes nothing yeah you live through one or two or three each of them is different what if you know also i am I'm, I'm not for making people scared it's not the point it's just you have to be you cannot be complacent and and yeah. earthquakes occur over a period of time geological time scales that we cannot grasp right it's everything is different the time scale is different so mm-hmm. anyways yeah and and
0: i mean like just just knowing about uh, and you, you know, I'm, I'm working a lot with feedback systems in, in my music, for example, <clears throat> and I'm pretty much aware that, like, say, say one moment where you're not controlling the system can lead to uh, an explosion that is like, you know, a multitude higher than you would have expected.
1: Yes, and, it and, just builds you know, up. It gets into resonance, and exactly that's it. Yeah, that's what a yes. feedback is: is resonance. Right? Exactly,
0: exactly. <laughs> and and so that's why I'm kind of like thinking, and and, <laughs> and but you know, like we're if we're dealing or if you're like dealing with probabilities, where people need to understand that that you can only always uh, give uh, an indication of the prob- what the probability may be for. When something may happen or what the magnitude of it will be, there's still a chance that it's um maybe not as devastating as predicted, or it could be much more devastating
3: right
1: yeah and it, that's the thing that's the uncertainty yeah. we're trying to control yes. and and the, and the thing that's kind of difficult, the way things are, we function in a probabilistic world so and most of the population really doesn't understand probability yeah. so how mm-hmm. how do you explain that without you know, people think that the 100-year return period means that something happens every 100 years. It's not quite that. <laughs> so it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a, so sometimes there's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, the communication of science. So it's useful because you don't want to scare people. If you scare them, you paralyze them. But you don't want to make, it, again, the complacence is really important. So you want to scare them just enough that they're triggered into action and they realize it's serious. And a mm-hmm. small investment of time and money maybe can protect them, and I think um, it works better probably if you, you talk to people about their families, their you know their own little home, and it needs to be relatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a that's a big issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so um, you know the you work at the earthquake center, right? Yeah, Southern California says- <laughs> Earthquake Center. Yeah. 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 So, um, how 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 does your institution communicate uh, the, it's the findings and you know the uh, is there like what are what are the what are the the channels? So there's use? multiple
1: channels for different things. So for the scientific research, we we communicate, of course, through papers. We go to conferences and so on. And I, that's the thing. Usually, I travel a lot, and this pandemic. Uh, although devastating for a lot of people, for me, it was like, oh, I'm not in the airport every week. It's like,
3: oh, mm-hmm, yes. mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Um, although there are things I miss about that, but yeah. Uh, and then, so the, a lot of that is done more in the scientific world, but we have a very strong group that's uh, called Communication, Education, mm-hmm. Not Outreach, CEO. And they're really good at communicating to the general public. And I don't know, in Germany, it's probably not a big deal, but there's a, a, an earthquake drill called ShakeOut, and that's from my center. And uh, last the last couple of years, 65 million people around the world participated in the ShakeOut. So it's an earthquake drill, preparedness, uh, Emergency services do their training, Uh, everybody drops cover and hold down and go under the the desk and all that. So it's kind of this is done through multiple countries and it helps keep earthquakes in the forefront, reminds people to prepare their earthquake kit, having supplies, a communication plan for the family and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think this is probably uh, one of the best things you can do for the general public. And they're mm-hmm. also developing new ways to communicate that, like in terms of intensity, as I mentioned earlier. So it's more relatable to people, so they can enable them to be a little bit more resilient uh, during mm-hmm. the but, Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. I, I guess like what you what you said earlier, the uh, it's a fine line of um, you know, <coughs> getting people to, to panic versus uh, being prepared. Let's say.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Triggered into action versus. This is so big, I don't know what to do. I can't control anything. I'll just, mm-hmm. you know, so the, yeah, that's, that's the thing. And, uh, and some things are low cost. I mean, it's just thinking ahead, having water, you know, uh, in LA, if we get a big earthquake on the San Andreas, we might lose water for three to six months. Yes. You are talk about, I mean, 20 million people without water. Yes. For that time, how is that, you know, so um, it's a real threat. <laughs> Yeah. And so, uh, having water, I always have some water in my car. And uh, since I built a pool in my yard, I have lots of water now. <laughs> but before that, but, I kept uh, extra water. Yeah. But, but there you go.
0: Even that little bit of information can make people so scared. You know, like if you if you just go out there and say, okay, uh, yeah, if we have a big earthquake, there's not going to be water for six months. You don't want to. You don't be. really. I could be i know but but you know it's very it's uh yeah it's very thinkable
1: but so. you, you should plan for at least three four days for your whole household and mm. then at least it gives you a chance to have uh, you know to go away i i don't wait until my my gas tank is at the quarter to yeah. refill you know mm. Um, mm. i have a gas grill and i buy three prop- propane tanks because first in the middle of a meal with friends it, it sucks when you run out. But second, if some, if there was an earthquake, we lose power and whatnot. I'll just cook everything burnt to a crisp with my thing. I'll use it to boil my water. It's just little things. And these are not the most common things to do necessarily. But that's, for me, it makes sense. <laughs> so I do those things. But it's it just, uh, there's a lot of things that are not very high cost. And just planning, thinking, having a gas shutoff valve. One big risk of earthquakes is it shakes, but it breaks the gas connections. Yes. And then if you have a break of a water main, you can't ex- extinguish and you have a fire and suddenly you have, you know, massive fires. But mm-hmm. if you have a gas shut off valve at the entry to your house, when it shakes, it's very simple. It's a little ball that it shakes and it falls and it blocks. Yeah. And then, you know, first thing I did when I moved into this house, I kicked it to see Oh, okay, it worked. Then I reset. And well, I'm a geek too, right? So, but uh, <laughs> you want to check your stuff, you know? And I yeah. know it works. So, okay, so if there's an earthquake, and, and that's the first thing I'll go do check if there's a large shaking, I'm going to go check and check and make sure it's off. But things like that, being able to turn off your water, uh, these are not all difficult things to do, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a lot mm-hmm. that can be done to be prepared. I don't have a frame above my bed, I'll never have one. I don't want to die uh, because I have a piece of art framed with uh, anti-reflection glass. (laughs) It's like, not worth it. So nothing above the bed. No way. No way. It's just, you know. (laughs) So
0: let's go back to a larger scale, right? So um, if we're also talking about music, waves, waveforms, and uh, we also can talk about patterns, right? yeah so what i'm interested in like if you're looking at like the global um um yeah quakes right and you and how they are measured is there is there something like uh what i would call like a domino effect or something like that that you get like you know what i mean so there's yes so that that these uh yeah Yes. so
1: there's it's interesting because there's two things that play against each other. If I have a large earthquake on that fault, I released all the stress on that fault right yes. there. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have aftershocks because little bits of the fault are locked again and they're not mm-hmm. fully adjusted and there's kind of all kinds of roughness mm-hmm. and all that. So i have a lot of aftershocks. But then by releasing the stress there, maybe I put more stress in the other fault next door, right? And this mm-hmm. one is going to be happy and triggered. So it's, it's, a, it's this idea that what we call elastic rebound, you have a big earthquake, and mm-hmm. until you have the next earthquake, you need to rebuild the stress, rebuild the yes. stress, yes. and mm-hmm. then you break again. That's the elastic rebound. Mm-hmm. And I'm explaining very simply, but the, the other, the counterpart to that is that earthquake triggering. Because you have an earthquake in one location, you overstress another part, Mm -hmm. and then you can have more. And so, and we've seen oftentimes earthquakes. uh, So you have a large one, then the the probability of large magnitudes and the intensity of the events decreases over time, kind of almost a log scale, but you can have a large, big one after that. So uh, 2019 on uh, July 4th, uh, we had a 6.4. And of course it shook and I started counting. It's like, and then it started shaking wow that was far so it was 120 miles away uh Mm. ridgecrest and so then uh, we geared up to go out in the field and all that in the morning i had a tv interview which i hate to do but i did so full-on makeup then i go out in the field like full makeup (laughs) i
2: think i saw
0: that
1: (laughs) it was funny it's like let's go out in the field and it's like i'm like you know washing in the but we got there and then we start to look where are we are going to go and do measurements the next day and so on. I'm with the team and, and uh, we go back to our little motel and then boom, the 7.2 happens. 7.1 uh, starts to shake. And that was tremendous. And it was fascinating. And so you see, we had 6.4. If it was under L.A., directly on the alley, it would have been devastating, but it was far, far away in the desert. There was some damage, some people lost their homes. So it's not like there was no consequence, but in terms of massive scale, uh, and then the 7-2 uh, almost uh, just very close to it uh, was uh, really uh, something uh, interesting to be there and take the measurements right away. And it was it was very interesting, but it was very distressing for the people. So while we, we were, um, excited for the data uh, the people around us were freaking out i mean i gave so many hugs at night and <laughs> people crying and this lady comes to me she's shaking is it safe for me to drive is it safe? and she was like she wanted to get out of this no it's not safe for you to drive it's not because of the earthquakes because you need to calm down once mm-hmm. you've calmed down in a couple hours you can drive this <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was uh yeah uh, yeah so sometimes yeah you can have a two relatively big ones back to back. It happens. It happens because you have adjustments of one fault. It triggers something else. So Mm -hmm. they're complex systems. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And, and maybe like one last question that just came up to me, like if you, if you're looking at the, um, is there, how much is known about the large Tectonic plate structures. Because I remember, even when I was in school, I, I, you know, like learned about that, and I can't even remember the names of the plates. But um, is this is this something that is sort of like? Um, I guess pe- there's still a lot of research being done on that, and and probably a lot of refinement in, uh, you know, what these structures really are like, or what we think they're like nowadays. Um, what about the oceans like what do mm-hmm. we know what do we know about the uh, uh, activity under or under the oceans
1: uh, again we can detect things from around the globe from around the globe right yeah, that's, so we can yeah. see that so that's the advantage of uh, different types of remote se- remote sensing whether on, on land or or um, in satellites and so on mm-hmm. the I think that the technotic plates are known, but with this all this geodesy and all that and seeing the motion, we learn. There's always refinements, but you start to learn interactions. Maybe there's a little bit more rotation in one of them and, and so on. So there's, there's more. And now that we have the ability to measure things, it's, it, we get to know more about that. And that's mm-hmm. a whole field of study in itself. So mm-hmm. it's... Yeah it's like anything else there's there's always so much to learn and and then somebody comes with a clever idea to try to replicate that at a scale we can deal with mm-hmm. and then you test the models against reality always you need that back and forth that validation because mm-hmm. a model without data is is uh, is uh, well maybe it's a piece it's a of model. art it's a model exactly <laughs> and and we are there's a saying and now I don't remember the name of it it, it escapes me, but I'll come back, but all models are wrong, but some are useful. Is this yeah. something that you always keep in mind, and you you cannot be too uh to oh, my model's the best and, uh, well, today, yes, but uh yeah, maybe not <laughs> so much so, yeah. So oh, no, it's an interesting field. and uh, But then again, I think I, I personally, because of the wide range of interests, I could be doing anything and be engaged in it. You know, yeah. it's this is fun for me because it keeps being stimulating. But if money was no object, I would. Switch careers more often, even though I've switched a lot already. Just because it's it keeps it fresh and, uh, but the, the aspect of the creativity is missing uh, for me. So mm-hmm. the, the more the the stuff that's more um, purely creative and not uh, scientific is 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 a big component that. That you have completely covered <laughs> uh, with your activities, you know. Yes. That's that's what you do. That's yeah, really... so so you
0: you were talking about this like and you are you know, like here. Yeah. The,
1: the pleasure right here, the ple- yeah. The uh-huh. pleasure
0: right there. Um yeah.
1: Do you know what I'm what, talking what? about?
0: I, I, I think I, I think I know what you're talking yeah. about. It's just you're in uh, the
1: zone and it's just
0: it's in yeah. the zone, yeah. It's uh, can you can you describe it even better?
1: I'm not sure. It's just, uh, it's well, I've called that uh, a braingasm. <laughs> it's the like brain a gasm, yeah. That's yeah. kind of what it is, you know? And, uh, and I've had that for the first time in math. I remember I was taking my eighth class of math in college. And then suddenly all the different concepts of all these advanced math courses just converge. And I was like, oh, yes, yeah, almost like ecstasy right there. And yes. if I listen to music... Uh, and especially complicated music like all the prog rock and what you guys do is just i pay attention to everything and it requires so much attention it's meditative but it's very demanding and it's so rewarding because you can catch all the tracks all at once and, and there's just this yeah it's a it's a It's a pleasure that's hard to describe, I think, and so in a way I'm hedonistic, but not in the way of somebody who takes drugs or, do you know, I love pleasure, but the the intellectual uh, joy of music, of processing it, and you play it, it's even better, but it's just such a strong thing, you know? Mm So yeah, I'm not sure how to describe no, it's, it.
0: No, it's, I mean I totally obviously like at least on the music side, I totally get it. Um yeah. uh, and um for me it's the it's this um the 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 greatest composers let's say they sort of like have this way to present you with something that feels totally organic
3: mm-hmm.
0: and 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 feels totally like it's been there all along, right, all the time. But then they put like these different things in context and you realize that there was like a bigger plan. Yeah.
1: That there, if yeah, you know yeah. what I mean?
0: Like, it's like so, yeah. and this is what I, what I love about music, like when things sort of like, you know, you're being presented with these ideas, these themes, like whatever, and then they kind of like culminate and they come together and you realize, okay, there is like, this is like real, um, organic creative creativity but it is also intellectual as you were saying at the beginning of yeah. our conversation yeah. so yeah. it's like it brings it basically brings all the the centers uh, you know the heads the hands and the heart sort of like together yeah. in one in one in one piece of art right and one yeah. in one uh, experience and um, you
1: listen to it and it feels natural yet it's so complex but there's so much work. So everything that looks natural requires so much work in the background. People don't see that. And again, mm-hmm. when I was a you know, a stage technician, people see, oh, the show was great. And you know how much it was a freaking nightmare to get there. But that's because there's so much mm-hmm. work. And mm-hmm. the creative process, there's that too. What, what fascinates me, it always uh, found very difficult, When I was playing just for myself, because I I really just played for myself mostly, a couple shows with friends. But Mm -hmm. uh, is the idea of where do you stop the creation? And I see you doing so many different things. How do you? You kind of have to limit yourself to be able to finish a piece or to. There's just it's endless possibilities, right? And Mm -hmm. and to me, this is something I admire in musicians who produce things and they're done. How can you say it's done? Because it's ever evolving. And you could do the same basic say you could take one one track and combine it with 20 to 20 different types of bass tracks. And, and, mm-hmm. and you could take and it's infinite. And to me, this the the convergence to something that is this is the piece. Yeah. yeah. It's it requires self-restraint, self-control. <laughs> Oh, the the wanting to finish to get a paycheck also probably. <laughs>
0: no, not, not in my case.
1: Okay.
3: <laughs> there there's
0: no paycheck.
1: <laughs> that's, I wish that's, there was, but yeah, yeah. no, it's that's the big uh, sad part of the uh, of the this pandemic is all the life stuff that is yeah. has been cut out.
0: I mean, but but you know you're you're quite right. Like how do you know that that a piece of is that a piece is finished right and and obviously you don't know and and i think that but that's a mark of a great artist to to stop
1: it's enough and
0: and and i mean this is this is what people who paint say because like if you like you 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 can you can spoil it you know like one stroke and it's spoiled and and one extra stroke and spoil and um
1: yeah And with um, paint you cannot go back and erase kind.: yeah. No,. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 no, that's true. that's fascinating. I think this this idea of creation is just uh, and, and to me, so, because we're talking about music, and one of the reasons that I, I, I didn't pursue this more, I have a good ear. I, there's no question about that, but the, for me, it was the level of exposure and of vulnerability that needed to be there. That I don't find I have in science. So I'm a perfectionist. I I'm really you know I really care about what I do and I yeah perfectionist. But if I do something not quite right, it's not the same as doing something with music or that's completely creative. Mm-hmm. Then I'm completely exposed uh, emotionally, yes. Yes. and and I think this strength of doing it in spite of this vulnerability yeah. is it's really what fascinates me and that's. Yeah that's what I didn't have when I was younger to have the guts mm-hmm. to share the deep stuff and you say, well, it's notes. No, it's just, it's something you created. It's just so intrinsically uh, intertwined with who you are. It, mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. it takes a certain uh, confidence or being able to say, I don't care or, but it's, this is the thing that I find also fascinating with music because if you want to create, it's, you you put your guts on the table.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think if, if I have uh, a gift or talent at all, is that that it's true? No, it's true. Because everything else I had to work hard, you know, Mm -hmm. to to get there to understand it, to do it, right. But, but I knew I was going to do it no matter what other people were thinking or or making fun of me, even like yeah. school when i was listening to music you know working making fun of me for listening to symphonies or like you know it, it but yeah. i knew okay you, you don't understand you know yeah I'll, you don't get it yeah. yeah you don't get it i'll, I'll just <laughs> i'll just do it and uh you know that was that is really like one of my one of my talents and you know the, the funny thing is like i um i'm one of those people who you know have a lot of anxiety in them so like like in my in my stomach it always i always club. <laughs> and so somehow somehow the the fact that like i i feel like i've i've been born with anxiety in my yeah in that's my body sort yeah. of sort of made me made me uh uh resistant to um to criticism or to uh getting off my path because some people were, you know, all they did was like they were all, all they could do was put more anxiety into me. And I already yeah. already knew how to deal with that. So <laughs> this is this is sort of like one of the uh, things I learned about me recently that, you know, I. that's can,
1: interesting. So do yeah. you do you do you think you really manage your anxiety? Do you yeah. block it or do you channel it? to something else. I'm curious. That's very interesting. No, I,
0: I don't I don't think that I channel it. I mean, but I okay. never thought about it that way though. Hmm. I would have to have to think about that twice <laughs> at least twice. But you know, like the <laughs> uh, <laughs> no I think I manage it. And oh
1: that's and, good. And, yeah. And
0: I think that the uh, it was for me like even like in in um, I don't know how you would call it, in, in Canada or the US like the first four years of school like I was um, eight years old or so. And I remember that I was in bed, like it was double bed, like with my brother, you know, the bottom, I was on the top and I was, you know, like daydreaming, like before falling asleep. And I had this this vision that life is like, you're facing a wall, uh, like a wall or like a, you know, wall that you have to scale. and mm. and And, you know, like you have the sense of like, tension well no, it's a little bit like mm-hmm. an earthquake building up yep. a bit mm-hmm. of tension right and you you kind of you climb the wall and you get to the other side and you expect release right and you mm-hmm. get a little bit release for a moment but then okay. you open your eyes back. and you see the there's the next one mm-hmm. and i i had that sort of realization when i was eight years old or something it wow, was really great. it was a very clear like visual uh interesting enough because i'm not a very visual person but that, that was sort of like my my assessment of life at that age. <laughs> but, uh... So
1: it's a series of challenges.
0: Yes, exactly. So yeah,
1: It's funny because when I mentor younger people, students and, and stuff, it's like, you know what? Stop seeing this as like a hurdle. This is a yes. challenge. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a challenge. Suddenly it changes the whole outcome. It's like, oh, the worst thing has happened. No, it's a challenge. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to learn from it? And it's, you're challenged. So that's, that's yes. good. And so, yeah. but I think, I think, definitely people like me, I always seek anxiety in the sense that I always seek challenges. And I think it's a driver uh, also. And yeah, I, I, people would call that maybe ambitious. No, I'm just, I just don't like being bored. So the anxiety is part of it. And although it sometimes can be quite negative, it also is a driver and it pushes you and it, mm-hmm. you're constantly challenged. And I challenge myself. I don't tend to compare to others. I challenge myself with against myself. And that man, I'm a tough competitor.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I, I wish it was um, the, the same for me. For me, it's a little bit more complex, I think, because mm. for me, the, uh, the music <clears throat> is the driver, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not that I want to be challenged. It's just uh. that I had to accept the challenge in order to bring the music into the world. So, like, yeah, like okay. if you if you had asked me, like, Marcus, do you ever want to be on stage, like professionally, or just like you know, in front of people, right? Like, I would have said no. Like oh. because I knew that as, as a teenager, I I literally had like very bad stomach aches when I had to perform in music school or something like that. So I never thought I would do it. But once my path became clear that I wanted to uh, create music, like the way it's more And about, you say,
1: I'm going to overcome. That's interesting. I, yes, yes.
0: So, and and then it started, like, uh, I had really these these very uh, specific moments in my career that I can remember in my life where, like, the inner voices stopped talking to me when I was recording, for example. That was a big thing oh, for me. Oh, that's nice. And then there was the moment when I was on stage and I realized I don't have to be able to, I you know, I don't have to hear myself. I can still function even if I'm not hearing myself. That was another step, right? Oh, and that's so there a big like, step. Yes, yeah. and there were yeah. all these all these steps, sort of like that, made me who I am. And uh, and like like nowadays, it's like like I've I've turned at least 180 degrees, where I I nowadays I enjoy being on stage more than being mm. uh, off stage. You know, anyway. Yeah. So it's. Uh,
3: and no, but there you go, true. like
0: challenges yeah. and like accepting challenges. But I'm 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 not really looking for them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it, and I, I say I look for them, but in a way, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think partially I do. But uh, but it's just I don't like to know limits, uh, and we all have limits. But when I I encounter a new one, I want to overcome it because I don't want to be uh, suffering from uh, limits that are. Most likely psychological somewhere in there. But, but, so, but
0: you know, like I, we have identified uh, some of your limits, right? Yeah. The musical instruments.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
0: And and you know, we know we know how easy it would be to just, mm-hmm. you know, turn on that whatever. I know.
1: The, the I M1 know that
0: or whatever. Like yes. Synthesizer. I
1: bought it when I was uh, 16, man. I made it, it. Is so it an M1? Did. Yes. It really is. I, I bought it in 88. I mean, it cost me like three grand. Can you imagine? Yeah. I was yeah. 16. I, I mowed lawns, I babysat kids like crazy. I went on a bus, I went to negotiate. I bought it, brought it back. Yeah, still the same, but yeah, it's still still there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. The, the, the funny thing is that um, I've always been, uh, like for lack of a better word, a teacher Mm-hmm. Like throughout my life and you know that that's also like the part of my psychology studies that that i've that i'm still carrying with me as a as a coach you could say yeah sports,
1: that's great. right
0: yeah so and um, and it's turned out that a lot of people that work with me are people that are sort of like in your position like yeah. where where you have you, you sort of already have a career that you're successful in, and there is like this this ghost from the past that is like my love, the love for music or the love for yeah. making art, unachieved art, dreams. Or, on a, yeah. Unachieved mm-hmm. dreams, and then then you know like um, for some people it you know it takes just a few months to kind of like get on track. For others, it takes sometimes ten years. Like some people I work with, it takes ten years, but they get there. Yeah. You know, they get there, and they have like these huge. Uh, successes in in realizing the dreams and and I have to say that is really something that makes me extremely happy to uh, to get to That's experience. That's the thing.
1: Yeah, I agree. And this is something that I feel now. I'm at a point where I don't actually quite care what people think anymore or mm-hmm. as much. And I think that would be a good timing. Unfortunately, I have a very very demanding job, and I don't have time. So. Uh, if i can uh, invest properly my money and retire early <laughs> i always sure. said that once i retire or something i'll play more music i'd like to help and maybe direct community theater and do these things and so on but mm-hmm. I, I get it what you're saying about teaching because that's the one thing i did like about teaching i, I taught a graduate course for several years and and enabling uh capacity in other people whether mm-hmm. it's music or science is mm-hmm. something that you, you give them the tools and in the end, the learning, they do. You support yes. it and you provide input and all that. But this is such a beautiful thing to see somebody who gets it, you know, and this mm-hmm. sparkle in the eye. And you know that you've enabled something for someone. You, you were a catalyst for that. It's their learning, but it's, it's really fascinating. And I'm sure it's the same for music. Uh, it's, yes. it's the beauty yeah. of teaching and mentoring, enabling people realize yeah. their potential, whatever it is. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, you know, music in itself is such a great analogy for other parts of life. As we know, we're, te- we're talking about frequencies then.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, like so. yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so, you know, that's that's why for, you know, just for some people just touching a, a vibrating string is such a profound experience. Oh, because yeah, like, it is like because like you realize, OK, like, OK, as I move my finger higher up and the string gets shorter here, and I strike it, and it vibrates, it's it's faster. I can feel it. I can yeah, feel and it if I use it,
1: a, yeah, if I use it half, it's twice the 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 height, yeah, and double yeah. the frequency. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> then you I mean, then seem, you
1: mix that up with physics, and it's fun. Yeah,
0: you know, it seems it seems so so incredibly obvious, but but really experiencing these fundamental laws you're of right. physics, physics yeah. like like yeah. like in with your body um yeah. as you as you uh, i mean you don't even have to play a musical instrument you just you just
1: feel, feel it. you're feeling and sound yeah
0: yeah yeah so and,
2: and, and super and, cool yeah
1: <laughs> earthquakes back to music and yeah Now these things are related uh yeah and learning is Universal.
0: So, so it Universal seems stuff. seems you're pretty pretty uh, much like a Renaissance woman, right? <laughs> and also with with your and you, was, you were you were saying that you, with the when you did the rigging that you were yeah. You, know, yeah you were climbing and and so so are sports and is sport like
1: no, no that never really never, sports. never. No. I do swim. I love swimming because it's so cathartic. It's like flying, and you can. Uh, mm-hmm, yeah. So swimming, yes. But uh, sports for sports, no. Unless it was hiking to see things, but you no. Know. Mm-hmm. Biking, I did a lot of biking for several years, and I haven't uh, much uh, lately. But did a couple centuries, and that was that was fun. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, now it's uh, swimming is my thing. It's just mm-hmm. a way to, you know, it's. It's like it's like flying, you know? <laughs> so it, it, it is, yeah. And I've invented this new thing where I put on, I have a nice Sonos system outside, and I have all my music on the server, so I, I don't even know which album is what anymore. I just click what I feel like, and I call that dance swim, so now I'm revealing a lot of personal stuff, but I basically put on music, and it's pretty much I'm dancing to the music, and man, I did that the last two days. I'm completely sore. It's an amazing workout, but it's not even... <laughs> swimming techniques or anything just moving mm-hmm. in the water with the music and that's kind of an expression and i'm never danced <laughs> per mm-hmm. se and mm-hmm. it, this is just so and then you're one with the music also and you go in. and of course what works a lot for me for that is uh prog is uh, and i know it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's i mean yeah a lot of uh genesis uh you know uh uh, King Crimson stuff like that yes <laughs> it's just going that or Bossa Nova Bossa Nova is a good one too that's more a party move.
0: <laughs> hey, so so why why is Quebec City such a center for Prague I don't
1: know like, I don't know it's maybe always been
0: was there there must have been like a, a venue or an organ or, or...
1: I think it might have been the bands that came in like Asia Rush Rush was my first love I mean yeah, I, yeah big time and i don't know why it and, and even for heavy metal to what we used to call heavy metal so i don't know why it's a very quebecois thing um, yeah you know in places where other bands uh, just don't tour anymore they go to quebec and they'll they'll be super successful so it, it seems to still be the case, even though I don't live there anymore I, I try usually to go back for the summer festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to work there as a technician and now I go see concerts and it, there's still more uh, rock of Prague there than other places i I'm not sure why mm-hmm. it's uh, maybe it's the inbreeding of <laughs> <Canadian people.
0: laughs> no no well i'm 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 pretty sure there must have there must have been some fans there that put on shows or know that made sure yeah maybe a radio
1: station or or radio station or something like
0: that
1: yeah yeah no it's interesting because it's kind of a unique type the culture is diversifying now but most people i know are are i mean my my ancestor came 12 generations ago to quebec all my all my ancestors that i could track down you know 16 10 40s whatever mm-hmm. and it's very uniform it's changing now but uniform white french speaking you know, it's, it, now there's a bit more diversity and i was surprised a, a couple of years ago last time i was there i took the bus and people i heard people speak in english i was like wow oh. what's happening you know <laughs> no but that was great because i kind of learned english working in the in the old part of the city the tourist part just because i was willing to and i mm-hmm. tried and i learned but mm-hmm. um yeah, so I don't know. It's a it's a different type of people. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. And but, uh, so, yeah. so the French Canadian community. How how many? people are there, do you have any idea? I mean, I, I can look it up on, you know. on. Yeah, Wikipedia, no, I'm not sure anymore,
1: <laughs> but it's probably something like 7 million in Quebec. And I'd say it's a very large proportion that's French Canadian, but mm-hmm. there's also a lot of French Canadian enclaves throughout Canada and a lot in Alberta, people who basically live in French. And the mm-hmm. and funny thing is that there's two official langu- languages in, in Canada. And basically, if you go to any federal agency, even a post office, you're you're allowed to request service uh, in french everywhere yeah, so it's yeah. considered bilingual but yeah. uh yeah so yeah I'm not sure anymore um how many people but i'm looking forward to go back there and visit a little bit i miss it yeah,
0: yeah. I, I understand yeah i actually went went back to germany because i missed the language ah oh, yeah
1: interesting
0: yeah it was it was really uh very interesting experience, like, like if, if you want, I'll sh- I share it. I was at an airport in like Dubai or whatever, and and I heard two women talk like behind me. I didn't, you know, I, and they were speaking like the local dialect of where I was born, you know, so like the German. And, yeah. and it was the time when I, I heard those voices. And I, oh. I, have to, I have to use this because like that best describes it, it was strangely erotic. <laughs>
3: Oh, in that's that moment, funny.
0: Like, like where I was, like I was talking like... uh like 90, 90, 95% of the time I was speaking English with people. And then I was living in Austria. So I heard a lot of like the Austrian German there, which is nothing like the German that, um, you know, where I grew up. And, um, and then hearing that really gave me that sense of sort of like an in- intimacy with myself somehow uh, where I realized... I need I I need that I need I need that back in my life and uh,
1: that's interesting
3: yeah
1: that's yeah. really interesting so for me I completely transitioned I still talk funny uh, but uh, I'm completely transitioned and and for the first sixteen years I was here my partner was French Canadian uh, he was uh, he was also from Quebec so we spoke French English at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and now uh, I'm with an American, and I became an American two months ago <laughs> after all these years. But I, I don't. Uh, yeah, it's, I completely switched. And uh, and there's a couple of friends I talk to in French, and my family uh, that some members are not really fluent in English. But uh, yeah, it's I, I miss the language sometimes, but uh, not as much um, as as I think for you it was really important. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's it's a bigger story because, but uh, of course, but it's like when you get caught between worlds, right? And then when yeah, it was also like a sign that, like, professionally, I was talking English, right? And then I realized, okay, really, all I have is professional talk. There's very little. Um, not, I don't want to say that I didn't don't have uh, friends uh, that I speak English with. Quite the opposite, right? But it was like 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 my profession uh, made me or I had to speak English all the time. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, That's and the only way. Yes, yeah. yes. And mm-hmm. then like like even and and it was also a time when I when I um, I gave up on watching uh, on on t- uh, watching the telly like maybe 2002 or something. Mm. Right. So so then like like not having that connection with that that sound somehow really started, um, I started to miss it and it was also, it was also,
1: yeah. So I'm curious though, do you you see, so it took me a while because of course each language has its own construct and it changes how you think and so on. So do you Mm -hmm. feel it's that part that's missing or it's the familiarity or both? Uh, Because it could be that you like to express yourself in a certain way in the language, is the structure that allows you to do that. So uh, do you think it's more structural or more? Yeah, I, I,
0: d- I, I, I have not yet uh, returned to my proficiency in German that I used to have. Wow. Uh, so I think what is like an advantage for me as uh, an English speaker, you know, speaking English, is that I am German. So my, my brain is very fast and it can kind of, I, like, I know what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Because like in the German grammar, you have to know what you're going to yes. say. Because, yes, yes. you know, otherwise you don't know uh, which words to use. Yeah. Right? And it's yeah. built like that. So in German, it's pretty hard to simply start talking and not knowing what you're going to say. And mm-hmm. so that that is what I have transferred over to my use of english so even though my vocabulary is very very limited i i feel that all the time like even it's in this, not I'm, no no you, you think you 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 may think so but it is very limited because i'm looking for the right word all the time right really all the time but what i do is because i know what i want to say because my german brain okay,
2: is, okay, is, 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 kind of is, is yeah, yeah
0: is, exactly it's pretty yeah that's why I can then find other ways, you know, find what I uh, or say what I want to say in a different way. You
1: know? So a question then. I'm very interested by that. So when did you when do you recall starting to translate? When I'm I, I worked in Alberta, it was doing oil exploration, whatnot. Then I moved to LA, and I was always kind of translating, and uh, to speak right. But mm-hmm. eventually, I dreamt in English, and I thought in English. And even though I talk funny. Uh, the processes are in English, so mm-hmm, yeah. do you do you translate at all, you think, or you... No, you, no. I, no, I don't,
0: okay. I don't, like, it's really interesting, because sometimes, like, uh, when somebody asks me what does that mean, I know exactly what it means in English, but I can't translate it to German, like, I have to look it up, um, because because somehow, for me, the cultural context in English is more, or, or in American English especially, is more, I know more about that than about the cultural context of German, because in in German it's something that's, that I subconsciously kind of, uh, you know, learned as a child, but... English, like I have to understand what drinking the Kool-Aid yes. is, for example, like I need to know what the story behind that is for, as an yes. example. Yeah, right? yeah.
1: All the idioms and all those things. Yes.
0: Yes. And but,
1: okay. So, okay. I have some, I, can, I know you need to cut that short, but there's something, okay. There's two topics that are kind of intertwined. Um, for me, when I, I moved to, to grad school here in English and everything I'd learned was in French, I had, I struggled with math. Yeah. A little bit at first, and the thing is that for me, math is anchored in a language. It's anchored yeah. in the French thinking, and even though it's its own language, it, it was hard, and it took me a while. Now I can think in math in English, which is. But here's the thing: when so just before the pandemic, I actually started to play my instruments again a little bit, and I enjoyed it. And then I thought, oh, let me look online. Maybe I'll take a, an online class because I'm autodidact, right? I learned all by myself. I had piano when I was a kid, three four years, but. I, I learned by myself, uh, so and and I went and I was completely floored because A B C D E Do Ré Mi Fa Sol La Si, and I was trying to explain that to my partner, and he's like, "Yeah, but it's the same note." No, because for me, and it, maybe it's also inside my brain how the visual is, but that's like relearning a different language, and I kind of got discouraged. It's really a different language, and well, I have this other thing in my. I've heard of synesthesia where my letters and all the stuff have colors and patterns and images mm. and music's the same. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I have to translate all that rich knowledge with all those connections into something that A, B, C, D, E, C is Do, Y. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. really so frustrating. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering for you who played music, maybe you learned one style. I don't know. Did you learn the Do, Remy or the A, B, C? I, I, D,
0: I learned both.
1: Ah, well, there you yeah, go. Yeah, I learned both. Bilingual.
0: Um, <laughs> but yes, but but you know the interesting thing is that, and here I'm I'm speaking as a, as a teacher of music, right? Mm-hmm. I think we can we can um, use the stupid fact that humans started labeling pitches to our yeah. advantage as we learn about music, to kind of like to 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 create a story, a story like literally just a story, that. Explains to us how music works. Ah, yes. Right. So, for example, do mi fa do is like it's it's easy if you if you spell the scale. But if you like, if you do the circle of fifth, can you do that?
1: Uh, the, solpege, that's the thing. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, the solfège. Uh, yes. Yes, uh, but dos. if you if if you if you do, if you, you, sol, do, do
0: yeah. yeah 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 and so, on. so it's it's really it's it's it really kind of like the the language we use the labeling we use for music pretty much defines how we then work with the musical material how we use thing. pitches exactly but and mine that, is
1: anchored in french yes and in colors that don't match yeah. the color is in English either so you yeah, yeah, yeah. have to yeah, double yeah. translate it's really frustrating so yeah. and then I'm like uh, anyways I was lucky but you learn both and yeah that for me everything is anchored <laughs> in, in French and yeah. it's so frustrating yeah. <laughs> so, so you know maybe just just no I think it's I think it's an ear. advantage
0: it's an advantage
1: yeah yeah okay. you, you,
0: you only need somebody to tell you the right story
2: Oh okay, a better with story.
0: In the in you know, <laughs> that kind of like uses the language that you have available. Yeah. You
1: know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting.
0: Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So um yeah, I mean that was was a great conversation. Like there was no need to be nervous
1: for me.
3: Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm extremely flattered you even wanted to talk to me. I mean, you're just an amazing musician. And it's funny because when I went to talk to you guys uh, with my my fiancé, we went to meet you guys, especially mm-hmm. because of my background with being backstage, I never go to meet and greets. It's just, I don't want this yeah. superficial thing. It's not something, if I'm going to have a connection, it has to be deeper than that. It's professional. And it's it's just, I don't like this uh, groupy thing. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, it's funny because with you guys, it was just such an intimate show. It was absolutely amazing. I was just completely floored. And you guys were just so nice and gracious and talking. And it was really nice. And again, that's not something I tend to do. Uh, but it was fantastic to get to, to meet you and Pat and, and Tony that have been a fan yeah. for decades. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah, Tony, man, is the man. <laughs> And then you guys playing together. I mean, that's the whole show. I had the pleasure right here. I mean, it was, and there are songs I hadn't heard because I was mostly familiar with prog noir and everything else was new, but it was, it's complex music, but I felt like I knew it. It's just, it just, it it was absolutely that what you were describing, it was absolutely magical. And so, yeah, so that was really cool experience. Really fun. And it got us to chat about Various things, so yes. <laughs> win-win. <laughs> yeah,
0: fantastic. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, and I, I hope I hope I um, get to meet you again in the real world at some point.
1: Yeah, it would be maybe, nice.
0: Maybe at another music show. Or, uh,
1: yeah. If you guys come around anywhere, I'll I'll wo- work around my travel schedule to make sure that <laughs> absolutely that would be fantastic to see you guys. I hope you can tour again and. And yeah, so, I hope so
0: too. I hope so too.
1: Yeah.
0: I guess like within the next uh, 6 to 12 months we will know how it's going to be. Yeah. If if and how it's going to be. Really.
1: Yeah. Well, we bought tickets for King Crimson this summer. They're coming yes. uh, here so yes. yeah. some some stuff is starting but it's uh, you yeah. have to fit in with all the different things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you see like the I think there's like something that maybe not everybody is aware of um I guess for um, groups of a certain, um, how shall I say, um, just audience size, right? And if if people, if you know, if venues can only can can only take fifty percent of that, uh, then some shows simply are not going to happen because like the costs are higher than yeah. So yeah, and I venues. I I'm a little bit concerned that uh, with stickmen we kind of like fall into that category.
1: You're in that range where yes, the venue could yeah. not function if they only allow. A... Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are smaller venues which, for the audience, is fantastic. For revenue, is not as great. I realize that, but the experience from the audience is so. Yeah, I, I
0: mean, I much prefer uh, smaller places anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. I'll let I'll let you you get back to work. Yes.
1: Yes, I need to work. Okay. Very nice. Thank you you so much. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Bye -bye. Bye bye. Bye
2: bye.